Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Our text for today comes from Revelation uh, chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty God of horses and the riders, the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Uh, I love giving eight and a half month pregnant women uh, the opportunity to read scriptures like that. Uh, all right. Uh, so good morning, everybody. It's really good to see all of you, uh, specifically some of you have we haven't seen for a couple of months. It's really good to be together today. So I just wanted to say thanks. And then I'm going to tip this just a little bit more. All right. All right. So hopefully, uh, if you are uh, with us today, you've been following along. We have this summer been in a series all on the book of Revelation, and today is the penultimate Sunday in our series. So uh, we are covering the last battle, and next week we'll be looking at the new heavens and the new earth that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. It's been a long summer for me, personally. I'm glad we did it. It's been enriching. I have very strange dreams because of how much I read this book, but, uh, but it's been really, really good. And so, uh, so I'm excited both to finish it and, that, and to have, be able to say to other pastors, I did this. And then they'll go, you're better than me. And I'll go, yes, I am. <laughs> All right. Yeah, thank you. No. We're going to strike that from the recording uh, so that we don't get into any trouble. All right. So today we hear the story of the last battle. There's got to be a last battle, doesn't there? In every great epic, there's always a last battle. Lord of the Rings, there's a last battle. The Avengers right? Narnia, Star Wars, there's always a last battle. And in Revelation 19 and 20, we get this picture of the battle of all of the world. You know, you know this is really the archetypal battle that all other battles, all other stories like this are based off of in some way. 
Now, the truth that John wants to communicate to his audience with this revelation, with this apocalypse, is that in the end, in the end, the lamb wins. I'm just going to give you a preview. That's what he's getting at, right? We have been talking and reading Revelation this summer, and we've been in intentionally talking about how when we read the book of Revelation, we have to read it through this lens, through this metaphor that John introduces to us uh, in chapter 4 of Revelation of the slain lamb. We've been talking about reading Revelation with a, with a lamb hermeneutic from the very beginning. And here John tells us again that we have to read this book through this image, through this picture of the slain lamb. But John shows us in this uh, in this story that he tells of this final battle, in this vision that he sees of the final battle, all the dark powers of the world gathered together against the, all of the powers of the Lamb, the devil, the accuser, and all of his compatriots gathered in one place to fight this Lamb. But John makes it quite clear, doesn't he, from the very beginning, that none of them win that none of them win. In the end, not even death itself can escape the total victory of this lamb. The vision that John sees is the Lord, Jesus himself, leading God's armies into a final battle against the dark powers of this world, against the beast and all of his followers. And throughout the book of Revelation, John has been building to this moment. We've been anticipating it as we hear John speak throughout all of this book. If you've been reading through Revelation with us, you, you've been anticipating this day when the cry of the martyrs from earlier in the book comes to fruition and God steps in, he intervenes. He says no more to the, to the, to the persecution and the sin of the world. And this is what John is describing. It's the rumble in the jungle right? It's the great clash of the powers of God and the powers of Satan himself. And just as we think we're going to see it, just as we're, we think we're about to get the blow-by-blow, blow, the description of all of the ways that God, is, God wins, in verse 21, it's over. There is no battle. With a breath, with a simple word from the mouth of the Lord, the battle's over. It's done. Technically, there is no battle, right? It's ironic. Now, and here's the thing. You didn't think this was going to be a fair fight, did you? The powers of Satan are, are not an equal and opposing force to the powers of Jesus in the story of the Bible, are they? John says absolutely not. They're not. There is no need for a war because when all the powers of the world are gathered together in one place, they can't stand up against a single word from the mouth of the one who spoke the stars into existence. I'll take it. Uh, they don't stand a chance against the one who sustains the physical properties of our world by his will. You see, what John is showing us here is that the thing which from our perspective looks like a battle from the perspective of heaven just looks like a victory waiting to happen. And John employs all the images of war here, doesn't he? But if you read closely, you realize that he is taking those ideas and he's turning them on, on their head. He's reinterpreting them for us to communicate something else to us about Jesus and the way he does things. You see, the thing we learn when we read Revelation 20, 19 and 20, 
is that what John ends up showing us is that the story was all along about what he said it was about in the very, very beginning. In Revelation 1.1, the very first sentence says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole story in Revelation is not primarily a story about the end times or the mark of the beast or the Antichrist or any of that. It was and is a story, a revelation, an unveiling of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now, I know the only right answer to every question in church is Jesus, but in this case, it is. It's Jesus. Am I doing that? Or is something else doing that? Do, do, do. Well, mute some stuff and see what happens. Um, so, so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to spend my time in Revela- most of our time here at the beginning of this message in Revelation 19. And I want to I kind of dissect this story of the last battle and look at the brilliant ways that John tells this story, this vision that John tells the story of this vision that he sees in order to teach us about what Jesus is like and what his kingdom is like. Because John is doing some stuff in this passage that is so subtle that it can actually be very easy for us to miss. It's very subtle and it's easy to miss. And, and here's the truth. A lot of people miss it. A lot of Christians have missed it down through the ages. Uh, the vision John sees actually takes a lot of what we expect from a great military conflict and subverts it or turns it on its head in order to show us that the way that Jesus and the king, kingdom of God operate is totally different than the ways that the kingdom of the world operates. It's totally different than we would expect now, there are also some passages in Revelation chapter 20 that we have to hit on today. We are, like I said, this is the penultimate message, uh, and next week we'll talk all about the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a couple passages in chapter 20, specifically the passages about the thousand-year reign of Christ and the great judgment, uh, the, what, is often, what theologians often call the great white throne judgment, that we have to hit on a little bit just because as you're reading this book, if I don't cover some of that, it can be confusing. When I first read Revelation, uh, there's a passage in chapter 20 about Satan being released from a pit and allowed to to deceive the nations. That was very scary for me, and I want to help you process that passage. So we'll be doing that a little bit. So that's the roadmap for today. But we're going to start in chapter 20 and look at all of the ways that the story of the great battle reveals Jesus to us. All right? All right. That's good. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn them over to Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. That's a great place to start, because that's where we'll be talking. So in this section, John describes what he sees as a great uh, multitude gathered for a great battle, right? And he gives us a series of descriptions of this battle. Now, when we read it at first, it seems kind of normal to us, but when you read this passage closely, upon closer inspection, we see that the battle that John is describing is a lot different than a normal battle. So, uh, and those differences, those, those things that are different from the way a normal battle is described are really important for us to take note of. So, the way, uh, the way John describes this battle is unlike almost any battle, well, is unlike any battle that's ever occurred in the history of the world. So, uh, the first thing we get in verse 11 is a vision of Jesus, the Lamb, as the head of the armies of God. John calls him a writer, faithful and true. It's a beautiful way of talking about Jesus. And he describes Jesus... Uh, But all of the ways he describes Jesus are meant to tell us something about how Jesus wages war, all right? 
So normally, in, in any historical account of a war, the historian, or whoever is recording the account of the war, gives us a rundown of the people and the equipment that the army is about to take into battle. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with this. There's often like lists of chariots, like how many chariots did they have, and how many horses did they have, and how many spears, and that type of thing. This is kind of what John is doing. In our, mar- in our modern way of thinking, this would be how many tanks, how many ships, how many bombs were, were utilized. And in the ancient world, it was horses, horses, chariots, archers, and the things like that. And very often in an ancient battle, there was a description of the weapons of warfare that the armies used themselves. So there was, did, the, the, did this army fight with spears, or did they have broad shields, or did they have round shields, or uh, did they have swords, or did, what, what type of armor did they wear? If you think back to uh, the story of David and Goliath, there was a lot of attention paid to what type of armor David was going to wear before he went into that battle. Uh, very often... Uh, this, this was a common rundown that was often given in historical accounts of, of wars. There was a list of armaments which let you know what weapons were going to be deployed in this battle. All right? And so John is giving us this rundown, but notice how different his description of the armaments that are going to be wielded in this battle, how different they are from what you would normally expect in, in this description. So the first way that Jesus is described is he's described as having eyes like fire, right? He has eyes like fire. And now that these eyes like fire signify uh, or represent the penetrating gaze of Jesus and his ability to see between truth and lies. And we'll see this, uh, this idea of truth and Jesus's ability to judge what is true and what is not true as we move forward a little bit more in this passage today. Second, uh, Jesus does not wear a helmet on his head. Do you notice that? Jesus has many crowns, which would be awkward if you were going into battle and you had to balance a bunch of crowns on your head. But, uh, but why does Jesus have many crowns? It's because he's the king of kings. It's kind of a normal, kind of understandable, right? Next, in verse 13, he do- Jesus does not wear armor. Do you notice that? He's wearing a robe, and the robe is dipped in blood. He's wearing a blood-soaked robe. Now, we've mentioned this before in previous weeks in this series, actually, but if you're reading this passage, and the, and the head of the army comes to fight a battle, and his robe is already soaked in blood, you would ask the question, why is his robe soaked in blood? And two, whose blood is on his robe? Right? These are natural questions to ask. Jesus shows up to the battle with a blood-soaked robe. Uh, So it cannot be the blood of his enemies, can it? If he shows up to the battle with a blood-soaked robe, the blood on his robe cannot be the blood of his enemies. The blood on Jesus' robe is his own, right? It's his own blood. This signifies that Jesus will win this victory not through killing his enemies in armed conflict, It signifies the battle is settled before he even shows up. The truth is that the victory has already been won on the cross. Jesus does not win by shedding other people's blood. He doesn't need to do that. He wins by willfully shedding his own blood. All right? And in this way, John is giving us a little bit of a reversal of what we would expect. 
And this is further reinforced by the last image we see, the last description of the weapons of war that Jesus wields in this battle. Jesus has a sword, but that sword is not found in his hand, right? I don't know if you've ever handled a sword before, but it's very hard to do if you don't have hands. Uh, But the sword that Jesus has is coming out of his mouth, representing the word of truth, right? The, The sword coming out of his mouth signifies that he does not strike his enemies down with his hand. He wins with his word. Remember, back in Revelation chapter 11, we learned that this is how the martyrs overcome as well. They overcome by the word of their testimony, and Jesus wins in the same way. Isaiah 55, 11 says that it is the word of God that does not return void. Jesus wins with his word. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the Roman military leader in the Gospels? Uh, It's a story of of this Roman military leader who comes to Jesus and asks him, would you come and heal my daughter? And Jesus says, yes, of course, I'll come do this. And 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 as he's about to go, the the Roman military leader says, no, 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 you don't need to come. Look, I I understand how authority works. Uh, I'm a man. I have a lot of people under me. When I say something, it gets done. So here's the deal. uh, You have authority over death itself. So why don't you just say the word? and it'll get done. And in that, in that parable, Jesus doesn't disagree with the Roman uh, military leader. He goes, this guy gets it, right? That's what he says about him. Jesus is blown away by this man's faith. He doesn't disagree with him. And in this passage, we see Jesus show up to the battle with the power of his word on full display. Actually, we see the divine word of God himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus is also the divine word. He's the divine logos of uh, John's gospel. And in this passage, we see Jesus uh, actually represent with all that he is. All, we see Jesus representing all that he is in this picture of this battle. Jesus has eyes like fire. He carries the sword of the word of truth to liberate people from error and to judge everything that stands opposed to God. So that is such a powerful image, isn't it? And in plain language, we read it and it makes sense to us. But to ask the question, there's a question that we need to ask. What practically then does this mean? What is John trying to get across to us with this kind of counterintuitive description of the way that Jesus wages war? What is he trying to communicate to us? And so I believe that what John is trying to tell us is that the way Jesus wins is not by killing his enemies, it's by dying for them. All right? This is the way that Jesus wins. And this is, if you, if you read Revelation through, it's all throughout the book. Remember back in chapter 4, John asks this question. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And he hears a voice that says, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here, and he's, uh, he can open the scroll. But when, but when John actually looks, what he sees is a slain lamb. The victory Jesus won on the cross is the very same victory that wins out in the end. There is not two Jesus in the New Testament, two different Jesus, one who dies for his enemies in the Gospels and one who kills his enemies at the end. That's not how it works. There is only one perfect sacrifice, and it is the sacrifice of the slain lamb on the cross who takes away the sins of the world. This is it. This is how he does it. Now, you might ask, Nick, what about all these dead bodies, though? Can you please explain all of the dead bodies to me? 
this section in verse 21, the, the passage that I'm really sure Ashley enjoyed reading, uh, is what scholars call the carrion meal, the meal of the birds. Now, I think this is symbolic language that the Bible uses to describe the total victory God has over the powers of sin, death, and idolatry, all right? So, two quick observations to back that claim up. First, uh, when I was growing up, I played some sports in high school. Uh, I wasn't very good at very many things, but I tried really, really hard. And uh, I would come home, and if I won, usually my mom and my dad would say, how'd you do? And I would say, I killed them. I murdered them. I slaughtered them, right? Maybe this is something only men say. Um, did the person who heard, hear me say that immediately go and call the police? That's the question I have. No, I've never had the police called on me for that reason. Uh, <laughs> no, that was hyperbolic language that I used to talk about a literal victory, right? And I think this is a little bit of what is happening here in Revelation. Now, the second uh, thing that I think, it, the second reason I think this is a biblical observation. Notice that the sword that slays these victims is, again, not the sword of his hand. What is it? It's the sword of his mouth that slays these victims, which would lead me to believe that these are not literal dead bodies. The language of the birds picking at the entrails of the defeated is a really powerful and slightly disturbing image meant to drive home how complete, how total the victory of God will be when Jesus returns. All right? That's what it is. So the picture put forward in the final battle is not a picture of Jesus winning through armed conflict. It is a picture of Jesus winning through the cross. It's the only way he wins. Really, in Revelation 19, what we have is a prophetic depiction of what we read about in Colossians 2.15. So this is what Colossians 2.15 says. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus' battle garment is a robe stained in his own blood. He wins the final battle by laying down his own life. And, his and as his followers, this is how we are called to live as we await his return. All right? We lay down our lives for other people. We witness to the reality of the servant king by serving other people. We build his kingdom through the word of our testimony about Jesus and by loving people. We do not demonize and attack people. We don't wage war against anyone but the devil. And we leave the judgment to Jesus, which we will get to in a second, because only he has the resources necessary to judge justly. He's the only one. So if there is anything from today that you get, I want it to be what we just said, all right? But my pastor brain has to answer some more questions for us that we run into when we continue reading past chapter 19 of Revelation into chapter 20 of Revelation. So I want to spend a little bit of time there as well. Now, in the beginning of chapter 20, we are told that after this total victory, after the final victory that is enacted when Christ returns, there, after this final battle, there is a thousand-year period of peace that, begin, that, that begins. And then at the end of that thousand years, we're told, in, John tells us, Satan is released from a pit and is allowed one last chance to deceive God's people. Uh, just by a show of hands, are you familiar with this story? Just raise your hand so I know who I'm talking to for a little bit. Some, 
fair amount of people. Anyways, so this is the story we get in Revelation chapter 20. Now, this section has confused Christians for a long time, all right? Just so if it's confusing to you, just know you're in good company, especially the part about Satan being released from the pit. Uh, this was the scariest part of the Bible to me. I remember reading it in my friend's basement when I was an high school, uh, early high school student and being very, very freaked out. Uh, now, this is one of the more theologically complex parts of Revelation, and uh, theologians use a lot of kind of big theological words to describe what is actually happening here. So, uh, basically, uh, there are a number of different views about what John is talking about when he's talking about this thousand-year reign of Christ. Christians down through history have kind of, and what Christians they've kind of fallen into three camps. There's three basic schools of thought about what John is talking about here. Now, uh, theologians call this thousand years the millennial reign of Christ, and so all three of these views have the word millennium in it. It has nothing to do with a Will Smith song. So, um, that's for all you kids who were uh, 16 in the year 2000 like me. Uh, but the, so there's three views of what this thousand years are, and they are defined, I think, on the screen back behind me. So the first view is a post-millennialist view, which says that Christ will return after the millennium. The second view is a pre-millennialist view, which says that Christ will come before the millennium takes place. And the third view is an amillennialist view, which says that like other numbers in Revelation, the thousand years is symbolic and represents the church age between the first and second comings of Jesus. So this is the basic Christian spectrum of what people believe John is talking about uh, when he references this millennium. Now, that was the briefest possible explanation that could ever be given to a group of people in a church service about what John is talking about here. And so if you want to chase this down and read it, read about it a little bit more, I can give you some resources. I can point you in the right direction uh, to, uh, to do a little bit more reading there. Uh, and, and different Christians, just different Christian movements, have historically believed one or the other of these views. Uh, Pente the Pentecostal charismatic stream, which is the stream of Christianity that our church is a part of, holds to the premillennial, the premillennialist view. I should just quit. <laughs> I'm done. Which is the second one? We hold to the second one, right? Now, my personal opinion is a bit of a blending of two and three, all right? Because I'm a pastor and I get to do what I want. I do think uh, there will be a period of time after Jesus returns where, he established, where he's established as king on the earth in a literal way, uh, as king or messiah is probably a better way of putting it, in fulfillment of Old Testament, New Testament prophecies. But so many of the numbers in the book of Revelation are not to be taken literally, and so it's hard for me to believe that this literal, that this thousand years has to be taken completely literally. Um, but, but if none of that made any, here's the point, if none of that made any sense to you at all, if none, it's okay. It's okay. It really is. Uh, all three of these views affirm the central and orthodox belief that Christians do have to believe as part of what it means to follow Jesus. It affirms the belief that Jesus is coming again. And that when he does, he is going to put the world right. Christ will return as he is promised in John 14, 3. And he will destroy the forces of evil and he will establish God's kingdom. Your opinion or lack of opinion on this particular issue does not weigh on that. All right? And it should not weigh you down. 
Nowhere else in the, in the New Testament is this thousand years mentioned. So that tells us that it is, it is not centrally important to what it means to follow Jesus. What is centrally important to following Jesus is the belief, is the hope that Jesus is returning and he's going to set things right. All right? Uh, now, this leads us, though, to the next part, which is a little bit scary, which is the whole part about Satan being bound for a period of time and then being released to deceive the nations. Now, what is going on here? Now, full disclosure, I don't know. <laughs> is that okay to say? I thought about lying to you guys and telling you that I had a very firm grasp on exactly what is happening here, but I thought I should, probably shouldn't lie from the pulpit. Um, so, uh, and it's not for lack of work. I've probably read six or eight, like, scholarly opinions on what this is from Christians for the last 2,000 years, and none of their opinions felt convincing to me, and I don't know where I stand. And so, just know that it's okay if you read something in the Bible and you don't immediately know what you think about it, because I'm right there, and I've spent the, so much time in the book of Revelation this summer that it's giving me weird dreams. So, uh, so, but here's the point. Here's what I want to clear up for us today. Uh, th this passage can be very scary, right? What is, why is Satan being bound and then let go? Is he going to be able to get us? What's happening here? Now, what you need to know from this passage is that whatever is going on with Satan in this passage, he is not successful when he's released from this bondage. He's not successful in any way, shape, or form. We're told that right as the powers or forces of the devil are gathered together, he's devoured by fire from heaven in kind of a second story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, now, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright sums up this part of uh, Revelation chapter 20 this way in a way that I think is really helpful for us. He says, he, Satan, must be allowed a final moment to flail around with his lies and accusations so that in his overthrow it will be clear beyond the slightest doubt that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in the Messiah Jesus. Like a boxer staggering to his feet to face the last punch, he must come up one more time, even if only to be knocked flat on the canvas forever. All right? So if it's scary to you, just take, take heart. It's, it's uh, what's described here. We might not have full understanding of it, but he loses, all right? He loses. All right, so that's that section. I just wanted to cover it briefly with us this morning because a lot of people do have questions about that. And though I might not have answered your questions, I hope I gave you a little bit of hope through the piece. Now, the last thing I want to talk about this morning is the last thing mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And this is the story of the last judgment. And I just want to read this section for us this morning so that we have a little context for what we're talking about. So, it says, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then the dead, then the death of Hades, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire." The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, this final judgment 
is connected to the final battle that we read about earlier in chapter 19. In the final battle, the beast and the dark powers of this world were defeated. And at the beginning of chapter 20, the accuser, Satan, the dragon that we read about throughout Revelation is defeated. And the last holdout, the last thing that is finally defeated is the very first enemy in the Bible. The old enemy of Adam and Eve. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or less you will surely die. Death itself is finally dealt with. The victory of Jesus is so final, it's so complete, that even death and death's home base, which is described as Hades here, are annihilated. They're wiped out. They're erased. They're dealt with. The victory of Jesus uh, is so complete that not even death stands a chance. And at this point, the curse, at this point in the story of the Bible, the curse that was pronounced upon Adam and Eve has been finally and totally reversed. And the stage is now set in the book of Revelation for a great act of resurrection and recreation that we're going to read about next week in chapters 21 and 22 with the new heavens and the new earth. It's beautiful, and I'd encourage you uh, to be with us. But the great distinction uh, of this new heavens and this new earth is that evil and death are nowhere to be found in them. And all that stands opposed to God's goodness and to God's love must be put aside. It can't be in that place. This means that everything and everyone must either participate in the renewal of all things or be excluded from that space. What we see in the final judgment before the great throne of God is that truth wins out. Truth in its most brutal form wins out. Nothing can or will thwart the purposes of God to liberate, to save, and redeem his world. Nothing in our lives that does not align with the goodness of love and love of God can remain whatsoever. In the light of God, in the light of, and in the light of this great judgment, all will be revealed. Nothing will be hidden. Nothing will, be, uh, nothing will be partially uh, shown, but everything will be fully revealed. The New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham has a really great way of describing this last judgment. He says this, he says, The image of the last judgment points to the need for the final truth of all human lives to be made clear. Nothing is hidden that will be disclosed. Uh, will not be disclosed. In the light of God's judgment, all illusions about oneself, all pretenses and deceits, all distorted self-representations must be discarded. It follows that also all our illusions about other people must be dispelled. Such truth will be painful, but will also include happy surprises. At the same time, at the last judgment, we shall confront the truth of the one who judges, the truth of his dealings with us in this life, as well as the truth of his final verdict on us. We shall recognize him as he is in Jesus Christ, in his uncompromising righteousness and infinite mercy. In Jesus, we see the picture of a God who is both infinitely just and infinitely merciful. We are, we are not God, all right? We do not know how far the mercy of God will extend. Who is on the throne in this great throne judgment? Is it me? No. Is it you? No. It's God. 
It's not Nick, right? Because we don't have eyes like fire. We don't have the ability to decipher truth from lies in the way that God was. On, in this picture of the great throne, we see a picture of a God who judges justly and is described as being so. But God is also merciful. The, this God who, who moves towards us in the person of Jesus, who does, not just, who does not just hang the anvil of eternity over our heads waiting to drop it on us, but rather moves towards us in the person of Jesus in love. Uh, a God who does not slay his enemies, but dies for his enemies. In the person of Jesus, we see the face of a God of love. And so is there, the question then is, is there a divine exclusion? Are there things and are there people who will be left out of God's good future, of this new heavens and new earth? And the answer to that question, simply because of free will, because of your volition and my volition, that yes, yes, there will be. But this does not detract from the goodness of God. And God is not an angry torturer in the basement somewhere. God is a good God who desires a good world and is willing to do whatever he needs to do in order to get to that place. Visions of hell have been grossly overstated in our time and have overshadowed the reality of a good God who does everything he does in order to bring about a good future. All right? This is, we are not, and here's where I stand on this, okay? The Bible does not tell us about things like judgment in order to coerce our good behavior, all right? The Bible tells us about these things because this is true, (laughs) all right? The thing that is supposed to enrapture our hearts is the love of God, and it is in the face of the love of God that we move towards him, not out of fear of punishment. I don't know about you, but if somebody ever asked me, Nick, why do you love your wife? And I responded, because I'm really scared of her. Uh, People would go, I don't think that's love, right? Because it's not, because it's not. And what we see at the end of the book of Bible is a truth of God, but we do not know how far the extent of God's mercy will go, right? Because we are not God and we do not know. And so it is not our job to judge. It is not our job to say. It is not our job to make uh, distinctions about who is in and who is out, right? I don't believe that it is. It is our job to live like the lamb in the midst of the world and to be a people who, reading the the story of this last judgment, do everything we can so that when we get to that place, because if uh, if that depiction of the last judgment is accurate, everyone will stand before this judge. We need to do whatever we can to root out whatever darkness and partiality is in us so that when we get to that place, right, it's, it's, it's a not quite so painful. Now, here's an example for you. If, we, if you get to the throne room of God and you're just a little bit racist, right? Here's a question. It might be good for you before you get to that place to root some of that out of your heart. I think the point of this great white throne judgment for us is that uh, God wants us to 
be formed, transformed into a type of people in the here and now who would be comfortable living in the world to come. All right? I think that's part of the truth for us. I was listening to a pastor this week who, was ta- who works with addicts, with, uh, and he was saying that, uh, in Canada, and he was saying many, with many of the addicts that he works with, when they experience love from somebody in their, uh, in their treatment program, like real love, it actually triggers something bad in them, and they go back to their addiction to drugs. And he said the reason that that happens is because they had, many of these people had been so mistreated and had had so many bad experiences and had not actually experienced love in their life that, that real love feels like hell. It feels like hell. And there is, a, there is a place and there is a way of understanding this great right throne judgment of God that it is just pure, unadulterated love. It is just the pure love of God. And some people underst- uh, experience it as a kind of hell and other people experience it as something else, as, as, as God's love. But what we need to know and what we need to see and what I think the thing that is most prescient for us this morning is just this reality. God wants to make us into people who will be comfortable in his good world. This is what we call in the church discipleship, all right? About becoming the people that God created us to be in the first place. About, uh, about learning to live into the person that God created us to be. About, uh, be. about rooting out things out of our hearts. And it is a warning as well. This last judgment is a warning as well, and we should hear it as a warning, but we should not, it, we should not see it as an anvil hanging over our head, head waiting to drop on us, but rather as a warning that God is thoroughly committed to the goodness and flourishing of, his, of the world he created good, and we should be as well. All right? All right. Would you stand with me this morning as we go? Whew. All right. I, uh, I was really struggling with this one, guys. I was up at 11 last night, and then I took two melatonin, and I was like, I got to go to sleep. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I hope that was clear for us. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. Um, the picture that we get of Jesus in the book of Revelation is a picture that should move our hearts towards him and create in us a desire to move towards him as well. That's what it should do for us. And so this morning as we go, I just want to pray for us that we would be a people who would allow the light and truth of God, those eyes that are like fire, to penetrate into our hearts and that we would be changed and transformed so that we become the people that God would have us to be. And if you're in this place today and you don't know the love of Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity right now in, in the quietness of your heart to make that commitment, to step into a personal relationship with Jesus in such a way as that when you stand before the judge of all the earth, you know that the thing that he sees is the person of Christ. So, would, you, would everyone bow your heads and close your eyes with me this, this morning? Father, we love you, uh, and we pray that you would be here with us today. We pray, God, that your love, your goodness, your grace would be an ever-present reminder to us. And I pray first and foremost in this room for those people uh, who, uh, who follow you, God. Those people in this room who, uh, who, who see you and love you and know you, God, for your children. I pray that you would do the work of rooting out in our hearts all of the stuff that isn't going to last into eternity. God, would you do it now? 
would you help us to do the hard, sometimes hard, sometimes painful work of rooting out everything in my life that isn't going to make it uh, into the age to come? Would you help me to be the person that you've created me to be? And would you help them to be the people that you've created them to be so that we could grow up into all of all that God that in Christ has for us? And the second thing is we would be remiss if we didn't, if we didn't uh, provide this opportunity as well. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this place today and you are saying, I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. I don't know what it means to have a relationship with him. I don't, I, I, Nick, I don't know what you're talking about this morning. If that's you in this place, whether, uh, whether, you've, whether you don't have a relationship with this Jesus or you've, you've wandered from it and you want to uh, recommit your life to the journey of being a, a Jesus person, if you would just raise your hand this morning and, and by that upraised hand, you simply say, uh, Nick, would you pray for me? I want to follow Jesus more closely this morning. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's pray for you. Father, uh, I pray for these uh, in the room today who say they want to follow you more closely. Uh, would you right now, in the power of the Holy Spirit, reach down your hand and will you, uh, will you call out to them? Would they know that they know that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, uh, that by that upraised hand and by the, the, by the profession of their faith, they have eternal life in you? That, they have, no, that they, they have no need of fear, God, that they have no uh, need of uh, any other thought, but that you would be all in all in their lives. And God, uh, we just thank you for the opportunity this morning to be your people gathered together around your word. And we pray that as we go from this place today, we would be a people who live like the lamb, who serve and sacrifice and love everyone that we come in contact with, that we would not demonize, that we would not name call, that, but that we would fully throw ourselves into the process of being Jesus' people for the sake of the world. And so we pray it all in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, if you brought a gift with you today, uh, you could throw it in the black box on your way out. Would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord?